At 600 kilometers above planet Earth, the temperature fluctuates between 120 and negative 100 degrees Celsius. There's nothing to carry sound, no oxygen, and no air pressure. Life here is impossible. Like all images of the Earth seen from space, this image of our planet is mythical and majestic. The globe seems almost tangible, slowly spinning, floating in the endless void of space. It is a blue planet, and bright white clouds twirl and stretch in capricious patterns across the deep blue of the oceans and the jigsaw of continents, green, yellow, and brown. It is noon in Cape Town, and early night in India. The sphere is almost a perfect orb, except for the darkened sliver on its eastern edge. It is beautiful, and so full of life, but not here. Here, it is completely silent. In the distance, a small metal object crosses the empty space surrounding Earth. If it appears to be a small satellite, that is only because it is far away from us. It is the size of one football field. It is the International Space Station. It resembles a dragonfly. Its solar panels stretch out like wings from the long body made of connected pressurized modules. It floats with a sense of proud achievement. It orbits at an altitude of 500 kilometers above sea level. It moves at an average of 27,700 kilometers per hour, completing 15.7 laps around the Earth per day. It is cruising over Zimbabwe, to the east, the island of Madagascar, up to the north, the expansive dry lands of Somalia and Ethiopia. Soon the ISS curves around the spherical planet and it becomes smaller, almost indistinguishable, no more than a small bright speck gazing over the blue atmosphere. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Alright, report the satellite has incurred a missile strike. The impact has created a cloud of debris orbiting at 20,000 miles per hour. Current debris orbit does not overlap with your trajectory. Keep you posted on any development. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort, repeat, mission abort. Initiate emergency disconnect from Hubble. Start the overpass for PLS at Kennedy. ISS immediate emergency evacuation. Copy all Houston, it didn't work. Immediate return to explore. Repeat, immediate return to explore. Houston, elaborate. Debris from the impact has caused a chain reaction hitting other satellites in its path and creating new debris. Nora reports that orbital and ballistic effects are driving the cloud of debris upward toward your altitude. We have a full-on chain reaction that's been confirmed that it is the unintentional side effect of the Russians striking one of their own satellites. It's not good. Most of our systems are going down. The re-chain reaction is out of control and rapidly expanding. Multiple sats are now down and they keep on falling. Most of them telecommunication systems are gone. Expect communications blackout at any moment. Attention to data suggests immediate evacuation. Absolutely. High frequency of interference and... As you may have already gathered, that is an excerpt from the beginning of the script for the 2013 film Gravity, written by Alfonso Cuaron and his son. It is a work of fiction, obviously, but events this week flirted with a real-life adaptation when the Russian military blew up an inoperative Soviet satellite that had been orbiting the Earth since the early 1980s. Moscow insists that the debris didn't get within 40 kilometers, about 25 miles, of the International Space Station, but NASA says the astronauts and cosmonauts aboard the station were awakened early and ordered to retreat to their docked spacecraft in case impact prompted an evacuation. U.S. officials say they've tracked 1,500 pieces of orbital debris caused by the Soviet satellite's destruction, but there are likely hundreds of thousands more smaller pieces that also endanger anything or anyone in their path. According to NASA, this trash will circle the Earth for decades, posing a constant threat to the operations of all spacefaring nations. Russia says the Americans are a bunch of hypocrites. Welcome to The Naked Pravda.
there. You're listening to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. This podcast has been missing in action again for the past few weeks, but we're back. And our main story on this episode is Russia's anti-satellite missile test on November 15th and the debate it reignited about space weapons and orbital debris. Later on the show, we'll be joined by independent analyst and disarmament expert Pavel Podvig to discuss the issue in detail. But first, let's revisit some of the other exciting things that happened in the world of Russian news since Moscow added a few thousand pieces of shrapnel to the vacuum around our planet. You could say a lot of things about a debris cloud shredding through the International Space Station, but generally speaking, it won't be very funny. In this respect, the subject has a lot in common with how the Russian authorities apparently view some stand-up comedy which is something that's provoked a lot of controversy recently in the United States as well, thanks to Dave Chappelle's The Closer special on Netflix. Now, even without getting into America's culture wars, I've found that stand-up comedy as a basic form of expression actually triggers some people. <laughs> this week on Twitter, for example, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council told me that uh, most stand-up is awful, and it's only the rare genius that makes the form at all acceptable. Whether or not to accept the existence of comedians is something the Russian police are mulling over as well. Over the past few weeks at Medusa, we've reported a bit about these comics in Russia and learned when the authorities are clearly thinking, that ain't funny. In early November, a stand-up comic with the stage name Denis Chuzoy released his third special, titled On My Own From Here, which he concluded with several minutes of material about Vladimir Putin. The show has nearly half a million views on YouTube, and the top comment, as I am recording this, reads as follows. How fucked is this country if I worry for Dennis's freedom with every other joke? The show's name has remarkably personal roots. Dennis, or Denis, is now 33, which is how old his father was when he died. So the premise here is that he's lost his reference point in life, and he now finds himself on this frightening new path. Medusa published a review of the show by comedy critic Asha Danielian, who gave it kind of mixed praise. Danielian disliked the fact that Chuzhoi's act doesn't stick to a single theme that uses each new joke to build a larger narrative. If, you know, structural sophistication is your thing, then, you know, sure, that's a reasonable criticism. For my part, I didn't mind the disjointed design or the fact that the show's finale with its Putin jokes was largely unrelated to Chizhoi's midlife or early life crisis. It was still pretty funny, I thought. In those final minutes of the show, he jokes that Boris Yeltsin missed the chance in 1999 when announcing Putin as his successor to stage a grand ceremony in Red Square. He could have gathered thousands and come out on the roof of Lenin's tomb, Yeltsin standing there, towering more than six feet, and Putin alongside him, so tiny. The two could have acted out the scene from The Lion King, Shujoi told the audience, holding out his hands like he was Mufasa, lifting baby Simba into the air. Amusing stuff, right? Wrong. Immediately after the show went up online, police officers in Shujoi's hometown reportedly started questioning some of his friends, trying to learn his true surname. Now, Shujoi is a stage name. What is his true Last name, I don't know. And at this point, it probably wouldn't do him any favors to broadcast that information. Anyway, he promptly met with lawyers and human rights activists in case the cop's interest becomes an actual case, a criminal case. Joking about Putin's height, that ain't funny.
Also in early November, Medusa interviewed a 27-year-old stand-up comic named Vera Kachelnikova. Late last year, she released her own special, a half-hour special, where she riffed on themes like feminism, masturbation, relationships, weight loss, and other, you know, sensitive stuff like that. On YouTube, the show now has more than 1.4 million views. In her interview with Medusa, Kotelnikova shares a lot about her process, and often she actually kind of beats up on herself quite a bit, talking a lot about a lack of confidence and energy. But she also answered a few questions about the prosecution and persecution of comics who have crossed invisible thresholds in Russian comedy. She says she feels powerless in the face of these crackdowns, like when a court jailed and then deported comedian Idrak Mirzaladzadeh for allegedly inciting hatred against ethnic Russians because of remarks he made about xenophobia during a comedy program. If I played the audio for you, I'd probably be risking Medusa's media license. So suffice it to say that while observing that Moscow landlords discriminate against non-Slavic tenants, he joked that ethnic Russians smear themselves in shit before going to bed. It sounds better in Russian, or a lot worse, depending on your politics. The essence of his joke was very humane, Kotelnikova told Medusa, but nobody knew what to say that wouldn't be misinterpreted in the context of a story where other people's words were already being taken out of context. She said she worries constantly that anything she says about such incidents could end up harming others. Before Kotelnikova performs, she actually consults with lawyers who review her jokes for material that might violate one of Russia's many restrictions on speech. Jokes about drugs, it turns out, are virtually impossible without risking trouble from state officials. That stuff ain't funny. As always, there's been a lot of news involving corruption in Russia recently. You find it in every country on Earth, obviously, but Russia does it particularly well. On November 18th, police in Crimea arrested the Republic's Minister of Culture on bribery charges. Arina Novoselskaya's previous claim to fame, besides presiding over Crimean culture, is that she once shouted the Russian equivalent of motherfucker into a hot mic earlier this year at a government conference. She's added another notch to her public profile now with allegations that she accepted 25 million rubles, about 342 grand, in kickbacks to facilitate some state construction projects. Hopefully she saves some of that money for a lawyer. If she wants to joke about it or swear into another microphone, maybe she can hire Vera Kachelnikova's attorneys. On Wednesday, MediaZona reported on two police officers in the Rostov region who seem to have been punished in place of their supervisor, who managed to flee the country after a mountain of drugs was discovered in his office. The two cops were convicted of extorting bribes, planning drugs, and abusing detainees. And their combined prison sentences add up to so many years that it could go buy liquor or gamble in the United States if we were talking about a person's age. Lots of years. More than 21. But Mediazona's investigation strongly suggests that the evidence used against these men was circumstantial. And investigators may have submitted bogus testimony collected from junkies to pin the case on the two guys who maybe were just working under the real criminal. Wherever their old boss is hiding out now, you wonder if he feels any sense of, uh, of guilt as he, as he sits poolside, obviously. On Tuesday, Nove Gazeta published a real bombshell, an interview with an honest judge who's publicly gone to war against corrupt cops and prosecutors in Chelyabinsk. The judge, a man named Anton Dolgov, says police charged a 70-year-old man with raping two underage, very young girls. But a state prosecutor confessed to him privately that the case is baseless. Dolgov later discovered forged signatures in the police paperwork, which he says required him to return the case to investigators without a ruling. Various officials, including Dolgov's own supervisors, tried to interfere with this decision, but he sent it back anyway. This did not go over well, and he's essentially become a persona non grata in the justice system, which is a problem because that's where he works. 
Appellate courts constantly overturn his verdicts, and his own supervisors have informed him that he no longer has any protection. Dolgov is on his own now, which is probably why he agreed at all to talk to Nové Gazeta. In the end, by the way, the rape case was sent to another judge who convicted the seven-year-old suspect and sentenced him to 15 years in prison. On to our main story this week, a Russian anti-satellite missile test that generated a large cloud of debris, adding to the Earth's already growing space junk problem. As I said at the top of the show, after my thrilling table read from the script of Gravity, Moscow has defended its test as a safe exercise that differs little from the tests America and others have conducted in recent years. Asked why Russia finally decided to test one of these weapons now, after likely having the capacity for decades, Russian military expert Pavel Luzin told Medusa that Moscow is shifting its missile defense strategy from likely catastrophic reverse-shot nuclear blasts directly over intended targets, for example, in the sky over Moscow, to more distant interception points at the highest possible altitude, moving the big boom into outer space. In other words, Russia's test this week was likely more about practicing against an incoming ballistic warhead, not a satellite in orbit. To learn more about Russia's weapons test, I welcome back to the podcast Pavel Podvig, an independent analyst based in Geneva, where he runs the project Russian Nuclear Forces and works as a senior research fellow at the UN Institute for Disarmament Research and as a researcher with the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University. Like any cool kid born in the 1980s, I grew up playing the arcade game Missile Command. So I'm also something of an expert in this field. To test Dr. Podvig's expertise, to make sure he's on my level, I asked him to explain what Atari's incredible vector graphics represent in reality. How does an anti-satellite ASAT missile actually work? There are several ways of destroying the satellite. Is one is just to hit it. It's the kinetic kill. And normally the speed is high enough for most objects to be destroyed. You could also do a fragmentation warhead. So that, that's, that's a possibility. That way you don't need to be very precise in your maneuvering. Yeah. Although that's, that's a very old way of doing that because it, it's not that big of a problem. The final approach is reasonably uh, simple compared to other components involved. Or you could probably do kinetic uh, intercept would be what people call hit to kill. And but you could also do things like approach a satellite and I would put a blanket over it to some, something. So if it's a reconnaissance satellite, you won't see anything. You, you're not destroying it physically, but or you could fry it with microbes. I mean, there are, there are ways of of disrupting, disabling, destroying the satellite. The biggest controversy about Russia's ASAT missile test this week is that it generated an enormous amount of debris that will stay in orbit for years to come. I asked Dr. Podvig if this is a feature of shooting down satellites or an unavoidable bug in the procedure. He said this also comes down to the differences between hit-to-kill and hug-to-kill interception strategies. But in practice, these exercises always scatter debris. Theoretically, you could you could kill a satellite without actually. But that's not how it's normally done. I don't think anyone actually done this kind of a hug to kill approach. But theoretically, it's possible. I think I'm, I'm sure that people kind of thought about it. Russia's test this week used what is called a direct ascent ASAT missile, which means they fired it up into the sky directly at the target. 
Podvik told me that this is the quicker way to knock out a satellite, but it's not the only way. Generally, the old way is what is called co-orbital anti-satellite. Co-orbital ASAT, which means that you just put something in orbit and then the spacecraft uh, maneuvers itself into the target. And the other way of doing that is what is called direct ascent, which means that you just launch a, a launch a rocket from, from the ground uh, and pretty much hit the satellite directly. So you don't put that, you don't put anything in orbit, you just directly approach your target and engage. So it's uh, this kind of a softer approach is would work better if you do co-orbital, sort of when you have time to kind of a put your interceptor close to the target, maneuver, do something around it, sort of and maneuver around and approach. With the direct ascent, I think basically hit to kill or fragmentation warhead is the, the only practical way of doing that because you, you don't really have much time to do anything. You, you need to put your interceptor right where your target is and they are all moving at very high speed. So it's, it's really, very, uh, very time constrained operation, but you could still, <clears throat> you could, you could still do heat to kill or you could do fragmentation warheads in, in that sense, to direct ascent would create a lot of debris because you're basically hitting an object with an object or you're detonating a warhead in the vicinity. So that's unavoidable in this case. And how long does, does co-orbital take? Like what's the, if direct ascent is like the fast one, how much faster is it than co-orbital? Well, co-orbital could take uh, all the time in the world because basically you could, you could do what they call uh, a space mine. You could just uh, put your interceptor in orbit, kind of like close to the target or even attach yourself to, to the target. And then, uh, and that could take days, weeks, months, years, if you want to. So that's, and then at some point you just detonate, uh, or do whatever you want to do. Is it likely, or do we have any idea if there are orbiting ASATs right now, just sort of hanging out in space? They're unlikely because the, 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 the thing is that you, even though that theoretically it is, you still need to launch, uh, launch a satellite, you need to approach the target. Uh, you need to spend some time in the vicinity on the same orbit and, or just hang around or again, attach yourself, but that, these are all, these would be visible. So it's, it's very much impossible to hide this kind of activity. And in terms of the ASAT test that Russia performed earlier this week, how does it stack up compared to the to, to, to tests of these of this exact kind of weapon by the United States, China, and India over the last few years, the last few decades? Is it is the Russian test unique in some way, or is it uniquely dangerous, or is it is the technology being used here different somehow, or how does it compare? It is dangerous. Unfortunately, it's not uniquely dangerous. Uh, in that sense, I think the Chinese test of 2007 is probably the uh, most disruptive one so far. Uh, the estimates are that that test generated 3,000 debris and 3,000 pieces uh, that are trackable 
And I think the estimate of the untrackable ones is in tens of thousands. Uh, and uh, that test was uh, at a higher altitude, about 800 kilometers, which means that it will take a very long time for those debris to fall down. And I think that some of them may not actually, in any reasonable period of time, may not come to the Earth. Uh, most of them probably. It, it was a very large satellite, about a bit less than two tons. So it's a very big piece of metal. And uh, so you could imagine that uh, there, and there is a lot of uh, metal there to spread around. It was detonated or a collision. The collision took place at the altitude of about uh, 500 kilometers. Uh, so it is a bit lower than the Chinese test, but uh, it's still kind of high for those pieces to stay there for a fairly long time. I think basically, if I remember correctly, the, the spacecraft that that was hit, Cosmos 1408, it's been in orbit since 82. And I think it, it, it probably stopped correcting the orbit uh, somewhere around 85 or so. It's been kind of a slowly coming down and it's still, it was still there. So it is, you can, you can see that it is, it was slowly uh, descending, but it's, it would take, so it would take years, I think, for uh, everything to come uh, to the atmosphere. The U.S. and Indian tests better, and they were better from this point of view because uh, they were conducted at a uh, lower altitude, two to three hundred kilometers, I think, uh, and they were, in a sense, designed, or at least they, they tried to minimize uh, the, not the amount of debris that you, you have no control over that, but sort of the geometry of intercept in a way that you don't uh, create a lot of long leave, long living debris. And to a certain extent, uh, it was successful because of this lower altitude. I think that, uh, pretty much all U.S. debris, uh, came down, uh, reasonably quickly in a matter of, uh, as I understand it, uh, one of the researchers just, uh, posted it on, on, on Twitter, uh, that the Indian have the debris. The pieces that, that were generated uh, by the engine test, I think one or two are still up there. So that's uh, two, two years, more than two years after the fact, uh, most of them came down. Uh, and they, yeah, they stayed for months there. So I think the Russian ones are, are going to be around for a long time. Presumably, when they performed this test, they were aware that that would be the consequence. And so, what do you think the decision-making there was? Is it that if the Chinese can do it, then why the hell can't we? Or screw the Americans? I mean, it seems like this is, this is detrimental to not just Russia's adversaries necessarily, but to sort of everybody who's spacefaring. This is, this is now a problem for them. So why would the Russians accept the costs of, of doing a test like this? I have absolutely no idea what they were thinking. No, I, I'm serious uh, because it, it just such a strange, let me put it mildly, decision to do this kind of test the way they did it. 
uh, that I just uh, cannot imagine that a reasonably well-working decision-making would ever let this thing go. It just, uh, because if you look at the, uh, this whole kind of a discussion about space, weapon space, militarization of space, this and that, whether you want to have a regime or you, have, you want a treaty or, I mean, there were there, it's a complicated discussion that has its history and all that. So, uh, but if there is any kind of a point where everybody sort of agrees is that you don't want to create debris. So that's, you, you want to avoid that. And specifically it's the, the idea that, well, we need to make sure that there are no ASA tests that generate debris. So that's, it, it's totally non-controversial. So why would anyone in Russia think that going ahead with this test and actually generating uh, a lot of space junk uh, is a good idea? I, I just, I just don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's impossible to to imagine that that was a rational decision. How culpable is the United States for this situation? Because one of one of the responses that's come out of Moscow following some very sort of severe language from the Pentagon is that the you know the U.S. has is committed to weaponizing space and it's refused to accept any arms control on ASATs because it endangers U.S. missile defense programs. And, you know, really what we're seeing is the, is the fallout of American intransigence and stuff. And how does, does that, does that reaction resonate with you at all? Does it make sense that yes, in fact, this has a lot to do with the United States position or, you know, what's the, what does the, does the U S have any culpability in, in, when these sorts of things happen? It's a bit complicated. Uh, I would say that, well, let me, let me, let me try to, um, uh, to go there. So, uh, the, 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 the Russian kind of the party, the party law, the official line in Russia is that, uh, Russia needs these kind of technologies, the A Senate, because the United States wants to deploy weapons in space. Those weapons in space in Russia's thinking are weapons that could, uh, hit targets on the ground, certainly few, or to some extent, a, a probably have in mind, uh, ballistic missile in space that would hit incoming rockets and things like that. So, uh, that's the line that goes back to the early days of the Star Wars. And in fact, if you go back to 1980, uh, that was the big issue for the Soviet Union. It was a big issue for others too. And then just, just for some reason, the Soviet Union was really concerned about that. And that sort of carried on. So rhetorically, that's why Russia is building those things. Dr. Podvig pointed out that Russia has made diplomatic efforts to promote a ban on weapons that might halt the development and testing of ASAT missiles. But mutual suspicions between Moscow and Washington have prevented an agreement here. There might be a solution to this thing that does not involve 
ASAT, uh, which would be some kind of agreement, some kind of a ban on weapons in space. Russia actually has the draft treaty that it introduced together with China uh, that says that uh, we should ban weapons in space with the idea that these kind of things would be bad. And that treaty was rejected by the United States uh, for a variety of reasons, but one reason was that, well, it would not ban ASAT, land-based ASAT, the kind that, which is a contentious point, I think it might, at least you could try to make. And Russia turned around and said, oh, you don't want abandoned weapons in space, that means that you have a plan to deploy weapons in space. So you, and because you have a plan and we, we see all the space force and all these developments that you have. And, and I think that that's the official imposition of the U.S. government that they're, they're, you should not have any constraints on its space activities. Well, look, you don't want to limit yourself, which means that you are going to deploy those weapons in space, which means that we have no, uh, other choice, but to build those anti-satellite systems to shoot down your weapons to what the United States is saying that, oh, but no, you are building new satellite systems because you want uh, to uh, target our military support, kind of communication, reconnaissance, uh, all that kind of thing, because the United States is so superior and you want to target that particular capability and, uh, and, and it's so I wouldn't put uh, the blame for this particular test on the United States. I think that that's certainly totally 100% Russia's responsibility. But the United States could have probably done a bit more to address these kind of concerns or to at least discuss them or at least do something to make sure that tradition doesn't get to that point. But Back to Russia again, uh, the, as I said, I mean, the, the, the responsibilities are fully on the Russian side, because even if, even if you uh, accept the logic, the official line that of the Russian government, uh, there is absolutely no reason to actually destroy a satellite and create all this junk. Yeah, Russia could do that with, uh, without the actual destruction, uh, so. Russia's been around in space for longer than anyone. And, uh, so, uh, it, uh, it definitely could figure out how to test this system without actually creating all this dust. You've been listening to the Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from independent analyst and disarmament expert Pavel Podvig about Russia's dangerous test this week of an anti-satellite missile. We also reviewed the state of stand-up comedy in Russia and breezed through some highlights in corruption news. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in. It'll help put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please make a donation at support.medusa.io. Throw in a dash E-N if you're going to do it in English to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help more, but we will take whatever you can spare, of course. Thank you for listening, and come back soon. Mm-hmm.